Can you remember uh, your most interesting day at work? Maybe it was something you've been planning for a long time, or maybe it was something that happened to you that no matter how hard you try, you can't forget. But do you remember what happened on your day at work that was really interesting to you? They asked us this a number of years ago at a conference as sort of an icebreaker. And some of you know that before I entered the church world, my first full-time job was in human resources in a chicken plant in southern Delaware. So I was built for this. I can remember walking into the chicken plant with a conveyor belt of naked, defeathered chickens hanging by their ankles as their heads headed toward a blade that would cut them off. I can remember standing casually having a conversation with an employee on the line when I was splattered with bleach and blood. I can remember uh, receiving dozens of very kind emails to human resources and dozens of very angry emails to human resources, which prepared me to send the COVID emails here last year, right? Uh, but my, the most memorable days, I think, probably of that season were going and visiting farmers. They had, farmers are just an interesting bunch. You know, we're in Indiana, we know, we get farming. But there were people that had all sorts of animals in addition to chickens, right? There were people that would raise chickens for us, but then you'd have all sort of hobby animals. You know, they needed more things to take care of. So we went out to this one guy uh, who had horses and he had donkeys and he had sheep and he had goats and all kinds of stuff. And it was our practice to go out in a big blue truck and to check on some of our farmers every once in a while. So we went out one day, having heard that one gentleman that was raising chickens for us had had a fox get into his chicken house, kill a couple of them, and then mangle some of his sheep. We thought he'd be pretty distraught about this. So we went out and visited with him and he, we asked him about it. And he said, ugh. There's always a fox looking to get some sheep. He said, but man, I'm less worried about that than what the sheep do to themselves. He said, they're always getting stuck in a ditch or caught in briars or ramming themselves into a fence. He said, I spend most of my time not worrying about the foxes or even the sheep kicking each other, which happens more often than you'd think. He said, I spend most of my time getting sheep out of things that they want to do already that aren't good for them. One of the hardest parts of raising sheep is helping them get free, he said, from their own drive to do things that cause them harm. I think maybe there's a reason Jesus called us sheep. What does it mean to protect a person? We've been talking about this over the past several weeks, right? What does it mean to be a shepherd, to know to feed, to lead, and to protect, right? We think about protecting from outside threats pretty frequently. We have an idea of what that looks like, just a big stick, right? But what does it mean to protect the person not only from threats from enemies or from things uh, outside of them, from peers, but also from the desires and the voices within them that don't lead them to good things? I think that might be where we pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Remember, before Moses was a leader, he was a shepherd. Before he was pulling people out of hard labor for Pharaoh, he was pulling sheep from ditches and briars. And here in this passage, we have Moses 40 years later still leading stubborn sheep around the desert. But that's about to change. The shepherd is coming to the end of his journey. This section of Deuteronomy is taken from the community's remembrance of Moses' last day alive. Moses is about to die, and he knows it. The shepherd is coming to the end of his journey, but the problem is the sheep are still wandering in the desert. And so somehow, 
on his last day living, Moses is supposed to figure out a way to give these stubborn sheep directions to the promised land that'll help them avoid getting stuck in ditches of their own making. So he gathers them all together to give them his parting words of advice. He doesn't get to experience the promised land, but perhaps he can give them enough direction to make it there themselves. Maybe, just maybe, he can give the people some insight that will take them all the way to the dream that he's had for years, but he knows now that he won't see. No pressure. One day. <laughs> I mean, what, do you ever think about what you'd say in your last day alive to the people that you knew were going to have to take care of your stuff? You know, uh, most of us would probably go over the life insurance stuff and the budget. I think Sarah and I could probably take a full day just giving babysitting instructions. You know, <laughs> it'd take a full day. That's just us ordinary folks. Moses has a lot more loaded on to him, right? So he's a prophetic figure saying hard things to the people of Israel, he's a civic leader kind of ordering their government. He's a pastoral figure, mediating and intermediating a relationship with God to this community. So he doesn't have just budgets and insurance. He has a lot of stuff loaded onto him. So you wonder, as I read this anyway, with all that riding on his words, how's Moses gonna start this speech? Here's what he says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Instead of a comprehensive government rollout, Moses starts his conversation with the people of Israel by giving them a sense of the cohesion, the unity, the united purpose that exists within God's character. I wondered as I read this why Moses would start his speech this way, and I realized as I studied it a little bit further that maybe it's just because Moses' concerns for his people are different than mine tend to be. Moses is concerned not just that his people live by the right strategy, though that's important, or the right principles, though they're essential, or the right practices, although that's really important too. Moses is concerned that underneath all those things is a bedrock solidity that starts with an expansive picture of who God is. Maybe because he knows that a right view of God is one of the very first steps toward a right view of living. And then Moses spells out the right way to respond to God. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And I wonder as I read this, as we think about being shepherds, what would it mean if the people that you're called to love, wherever you are, knew that uh, God's invitation was compelling enough to envelop their whole life, their hearts, the Hebrew word for the center of their self, their mind, where they strategize and plan and execute, their strength, their energy applied to the task before them, their soul, the Hebrew word here, because there's not one for soul, can be translated to all their very muchness. That is what God's after. And then he takes it further. He says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Sure, write them on stone tablets. Sure, use them to govern your society. But what really matters is that the word of the Lord does not just govern your society or stand as a standard for your morality. What matters is that it gets into you. I think that's a bit of a reframe for many of us because many of us have grown up understanding the commandments as God's sort of unattainable moral standard. Something that he set up so that we could disappoint him. That's kind of sick, isn't it? But Moses is essentially saying here that obedience to the commandments is just what happens 
within a person when love for God is applied to every area of their life. Try to apply a spirit-filled life to your place of business and you'll find that it becomes a lot more difficult to imagine stealing. Approach other people as God's beloved children and you'll find that even in your anger, you have enough respect for them not to commit violence either in your words or your deeds, not to bear false witness against them. Try to apply a spirit-filled life to your time and you'll find that Sabbath is a little bit of a natural outflow of a trust that God can continue to provide beyond your ability to produce. For Moses, the law is an unattainable standard. It's a rough character sketch of what happens when the seedlings of the gospel get into a person and actually appear to be good news. So now that he's described the kind of people they're to be, Moses turns his attention to how they're going to carry their identity into a new season of prosperity. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you didn't build, houses filled with good things you didn't provide, wells overflowing with water that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. Because he's good at shepherding and maybe because he's been at it for a while, Moses knows that there's often no better test of character than what happens when your dream comes true. Who's it good for if your dreams come true? Just you? Moses has fought the wolves from outside, the Egyptians. He's fought threats from alongside, the grumblers, the idolaters within Israel. But now he turns his attention to maybe what some would consider an even more deadly threat the values inside, the hungers that we carry that God doesn't share. Moses' concern is not just outward rebellion and that people would leave the religious community. He's actually more concerned that they'll stay and either be hard-hearted or part-hearted. Those who are hard-hearted tend to have calluses that are pretty, pretty obvious to those you'd see. They have very little curiosity about God or about life in general. Show me a hard-hearted person, and I'll show you someone who hasn't changed their mind about almost anything in a really long time. They feel conviction occasionally, but brush away any opportunity to repent. They approach others for the purpose of getting what they want. They hide or excuse their ways of mistreating others instead of making amends. They look down with contempt on people they disagree with. They see their success in and of itself as an endorsement from God on even the worst parts of their personality, not realizing that God can choose to work around us as often as he does through us. They see blessing as endorsement of who they are. Part-hearted people tend to do obedient things, kind of, 75%. They partake in displays of faithful obedience even as they nourish a quiet practice of disobedience. They find God's values compelling so long as it corresponds with what they already thought and wanted to do. They repent moderately, but rarely in a way that exposes them to any public amends. They quietly love things that won't lead them to the kind of life God hopes for them to have, but they don't let it show because they're much more concerned with how things seem 
than how things are. Hard-heartedness and part-heartedness, just like faithfulness, have a way of compounding over time. Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an action and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny, Emerson wrote. Part of what it means to protect the sheep that God's given us is to sow into them the kind of thoughts and actions and habits and dispositions that lead them to caring about the kind of things that God cares about. So how in the world do we do that? I've been wondering that for years. Part of my role in this community tends to be walking alongside people who are just becoming adults, right? Some of you in your 50s are just like, that's me. Uh, I'm with you, yes. Uh, they're figuring out how to work with the raw materials that life has given them. Their family of origin, their church of origin, the belief systems, uh, and re religious or otherwise, that have been handed down to them from a religious community, a family community, or lack thereof both. And so I'm seeing, as I talk with young adults, what things planted in childhood look like when they're reaped in adulthood. And then I go home, and Sarah and I have children that are four, three, and one, right? So it's nice to be awake this morning. Uh, but I wonder, as I raise them, what does it mean to actually instill habits and practices in them that grow over time into the kind of life that doesn't just benefit them, and that doesn't just engage with God as a rigid standard, right? What does it look like to engage with God as, uh, with life in God, I guess, as an invitation to become more fully oneself? By which I mean to find oneself in light of the person and the work and the character of Jesus and to live a life centered on Jesus as the expression of what is true and beautiful and good in the world. I've wondered that for years and carried out around a fair amount of anxiety. But the funny thing is I never thought to look in Deuteronomy for the answer to this question. <laughs> Moses says, the commandments, the ones that are on your heart, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, God's ways aren't just a matter of the heart, they're a matter of the habit. When you're walking along the road, talk with your children or the people that you're shepherding and show them about God's way of treating the stranger. When you're lying down, talk about how God can be trusted to sustain the world while we pause when you get up, acknowledge that your work itself can be a divine encounter because you will not meet a person in your day that God hasn't called you to love. Let the words of God be present on your hands and on your forehead, your personal life, on your posts and on your door frames, in the ecosystem of your home, on your courts and on your gates, in your public life, in your way of having civic engagement. Put roots down that affirm both in your soul and to the people watching that your feet won't touch a place that God's not interested in making new. Jesus echoes the same kind of message in the New Testament, speaking to his disciples who, just like the people Moses are shepherding, had a road ahead of them that required them to choose between God's ways and other ways that would at times seem more attractive to them. And so Jesus says to them, don't set your heart on what you're going to eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows you need them. 
But seek his kingdom and those things will be given to you as well. Don't be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that won't wear out. A treasure in heaven that won't fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's interesting to me in these passages is that Moses and Jesus both protect their sheep by giving them a picture of God's ability to be trusted to provide for their future, to guide their paths, and to fulfill the deeper need for meaning behind the junk food gratification that we often chase because it's easier to attain. What a peaceful change of pace that is for those of us who are constantly anxious underneath to know that God has dreams for us that are better than the effort that we would put in ourselves. So we can be delightfully non-anxious in helping other people with their dreams. We've been talking here for the past several weeks about identifying the folks that God's called us to shepherd, believing that our lives aren't just meant to be lived for us, right? We're invited to help other people. And so I imagine some of you are wondering with Moses what it means to prepare people you love to live in houses that they didn't build and drink from wells they didn't dig. How do you keep a person from becoming arrogant over olives that seem to appear out of nowhere that they now enjoy? How do we help those around us enjoy the fruits of God without forgetting that they came from him? How do we protect them from the desires and the voices that lead them away from good things? And so I'm going to give you just five skills. There are dozens more. This is not a comprehensive list. But five skills I think we can learn from Moses and Jesus about how to protect our sheep. First is to spend time knowing God. We're not just leading our sheep anywhere. We're leading them to listen to God's voice. Moses and Jesus both did consistent work in their own life to withdraw in small and big moments to listen to God's voice. Their authority emerged from a quiet center, not just doing devotions, although that's a component, but having an ongoing sense that there was, God's intention was comprehensive. That in every meeting, in every interaction, even in their frustration, there was a sacramental space where God could do with the ordinary something beyond the sum of their parts. Second is to be non-anxiously present with others. One of the greatest challenges of shepherding, right, is actually finding that uh, Another person has their own distinct personality. And so it's easy uh, to want another person to be a miniature you. Please don't do that. (laughs) Moses never approaches his people with the hope that they become little Moseses because he's not trying to produce little Moseses. He's trying to help them stay on track to be fully faithful in God's good world. In this passage anyway, as Moses is mature in his leadership, he's not anxiety riddled or angry. Moses simply receives the people that God gives him on their own terms, sees what's inside them, and invites them to be at home in God's way of doing things. You can do that. So can I. Three, identify threats. The magic of Jesus, I think, was often in his ability to stay curious beyond what was on the surface of the people that he loved. Some of that's helped by the fact that he was God, and so he didn't, you know, he knew everything. But uh, he also asked really good questions. 
And so he could see a desire for reputation and for riches in this passage that would eventually throw his disciples off track. The best shepherds ask really good questions and listen well enough that they can identify the heart underneath the words of the person they're shepherding. What habit or pattern of thinking or being in the life of the person that you love would prevent them from the obstacles or prevent them from achieving uh, the invitation of God, the dreams that God is inviting them toward? Listening helps. Four, they help sheep love what's good for them. Moses and Jesus both talk about the need to develop habits that keep God's heart at the front of our minds. What Moses and Jesus both knew is that God takes pleasure in giving his children the kingdom. And that eternal life isn't just a quantity of life stretching from now to you know ever. It's a quality of life that allows us to see every moment of our day as a space in which God has something to say. Shepherds help others bake in good habits that choke out bad habits. What small habit is within reach for a person that you shepherd that would remind them of God's heart for them? It could be as small as thinking of God's generosity every time they look at the flowers of the field or saying the Lord's Prayer before they roll out of bed. What would it mean for you to join the people that you shepherd in small habits that scale into big obedience. Last, they have dreams that are only for others. I wonder what it would mean for our church and for our town if we, if you and I, had really big dreams that we'd never see to fruition in our lifetime because they were never about us in the first place. They were about somebody we raise. In a town not so unlike this one, there was a little girl named Jamie who loved farming. Ever since she was a little girl, Jamie walked by the Walker Ranch in the corner of town, wondering what it would be like to have enough land to raise crops on someday. She worked on the ranch during high school and then went and studied agriculture in college and heard that the Walker Ranch might come up for sale. So she moved back to her hometown and put a money jar over her fireplace with a picture of the farm and a label that said, The Dream. That jar kept accruing money for years, but the Walker Ranch stayed on the market because the family was far away and didn't want to come and deal with it. Nobody in the town was interested in farming, it seemed, except for this random neighbor kid. Sammy started coming over when he was about 10 years old. He had some trouble fitting in with his family. He had trouble fitting in in school. He couldn't find people who would just receive him as himself. But at Miss Jamie's, he felt safe. She worked with him on how to deal with talking to people, and she didn't seem to judge him like other people did. The work tired him out and gave him a way to get his anger out on the soil instead of his siblings, which his parents appreciated. And at the end of the day, every day, Miss Jamie would look at Sammy, flash him a big thumbs up and a grin and say, until next time, kiddo. Over time, Sam seemed to mellow out a lot. He graduated high school with honors and went to college, but he moved right back to his hometown afterwards so he could be with Miss Jamie, who though she had saved and saved and saved and saved, had still not gotten enough to buy the Walker Ranch. But Sam went over and helped Miss Jamie work her own little acre. And as the years went by, they planted carrots and cucumbers, lettuce and corn, all kinds of stuff. But eventually, Miss Jamie fell ill. And so Sam planted while Miss Jamie sat in a lawn chair. And then when she got worse, Sam planted while Jamie sat inside looking out the window, flashing her signature thumbs up. But then it got to the point where Sam just brought in a picture of the field because she couldn't look out the window anymore. A few months later, Miss Jamie gave Sam her last thumbs up. 
But after the funeral, as the moving crew came to pack up her things, they came across a little wooden box that said, Sammy. Inside of it was a note that said, Dear Sam, we've worked the land these last 30 years, but what we've really grown was each other. I know the dream has meant as much to you as it has to me, but a few years ago when doctors gave me the news, I knew I wouldn't see it. I was sad until I realized that my dream of pulling weeds and developing something beautiful has come true. It wasn't a ranch for me, it was you. In this jar is enough for a pretty good offer on the Walker Ranch. Take care of your dream for me. Until next time, kiddo. All my love, Jamie. What if the most important thing you do in your life is not to fulfill your dreams, but to prepare someone else for a dream that you'll never experience?